Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is generally thought that living in small towns are somewhat safe. The age-old saying that everyone knows everyone and people don't lock their doors. Most of these towns we will talk about in this series are considered quiet communities with relatively low violent crime rates. And this makes these mysteries all the more eerie. Is there a murderer lurking amongst their inner circles? These mysteries remain unsolved to this day. Small Town Mysteries, this week, on Mysteriously Listed. Number 7. Jeremy Jourdain 17-year-old Jeremy Jourdain lived with his grandfather Bob his whole life. Between Bob and his aunt Alex, who Jeremy called mum, the two had raised him from a baby. Jeremy and Bob lived together in Cass Lake, Minnesota. Jeremy was loved by his family and friends. He loved video games and basketball, and he was talented. He would play in tournaments throughout Minnesota, Oklahoma, and the Dakotas. He was driven and motivated, and he preferred to stay home and focus on his future career. He wanted to play basketball in college via a scholarship. But on the night of October 31st, 2016, Jeremy said goodbye to Bob to go to a Halloween party at his friend's home on the 500 block of Wood Avenue in a nearby town with his sister. Sometime around midnight, Jeremy announced that he no longer wanted to be at the party and ran off without warning. He did not tell anyone where he was going. Although his home was 14 miles away, it is possible he was headed there. Regardless, he never arrived and has never been seen alive again. Bob would report his grandson missing at 9.30 the following morning. Police have theorised that Jeremy had run away from home on his own volition. However, he had no history of doing this and took no belongings with him. Tracking dogs did trace his scent for a few blocks, but lost it at a trail at the intersection of 6th Street and Wood Avenue southeast. It is theorised he may have gotten into a vehicle here. Jeremy was a normal teenager and was known to use his cell phone often, but this has not been used since the night he disappeared. Sightings have come into the police of a young man who resembled Jeremy, but when these were further investigated, it would be proven that it was not him. 
This leaves the family with nothing but questions on what happened to their beloved basketball star. At the time of his disappearance, Jeremy Jourdain was 17 years old. He is Native American, about 6 foot 4 and around 175 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Jeremy was last seen wearing a blue and grey hooded sweatshirt, blue jeans, and blue and white elephant print Nike Jordans. If Jeremy Jourdain is still alive today, he would be 21 years old. Number 6. Roger Hooper Cosby, Tennessee is a small incorporated community just north of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 26-year-old Roger Hooper lived there in a double-wide mobile home, just a few miles outside of the park with his wife, Kim. He worked as a courier for the local antiques broker. On February 22, 1991, Cosby High School's basketball team had a home game against North Green County High. As Roger was a graduate of the school, he attended to show his support. He left the school around 10pm with two of his younger cousins and one of their friends. Roger and his family lived close to one another with his cousins only living two doors down. After dropping them home, he made the very short drive to his own home. Just after walking indoors, Roger's cousins heard several shots. Upon hearing the shots inside her own home, Kim Hooper ran out to her porch where she found her husband lying on his back. He had been shot several times in the torso. Due to the lack of accessible roads at the time in Cosby, it took first responders approximately half an hour to get there from the town of Newport. When Kim found Roger, he was still alive, but he would die as a result of his injuries before first responders would arrive. At the time of Roger's death, Kim was pregnant with the couple's first child. Roger's injuries indicated that his killer shot down at him when he got to his back porch. This led investigators to believe that the killer had parked the nearby cemetery, taking their gun into the wooded area that overlooked Roger's home and waited for him to return. Roger's murder was not his first experience with violence, and it would not be his family's last. Roger had been shot at just two months before his murder on December 21st, 1990. Donnie Webb had fired a pistol at Roger on the entrance ramp to Interstate 40 at Wilton Springs. Fortunately, he missed, and the bullet instead struck a windshield of a truck that was exiting the interstate. Unfortunately, the driver of the truck was injured when the broken glass from the windshield cut his forearm. When he pulled over, he was able to locate the bullet that struck his vehicle and subsequently turned it over to the authorities. Because of this, Roger had Donnie Webb charged with reckless endangerment. However, he asked for the charges to be dropped only a few days later. 
but then went back to the authorities on February 8th to ask for the arrest warrant to be reinstated after he had gotten into an altercation with Webb at a high school basketball game. Roger was murdered only four days prior to the preliminary hearing of the case. Authorities were obviously interested in talking to Webb after Roger was killed. They found him in West Virginia after the murder and instructed him to return to Tennessee. Webb would be interviewed by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. During this interview, Webb would admit to firing his pistol at Roger back in December. He would later unsuccessfully try and suppress this statement in court, but was still convicted of reckless endangerment. He has never been charged in Roger's murder. Following Roger's murder, other family members were subject to attacks. The home two doors down from Roger's, where his cousins lived, were fired upon during two different drive-by shootings. Thankfully, no one was home during one of them, and while the entire family was present for the other, no one was injured. The Hopper family are sure they know who killed Roger, and immediately after Roger's murder, they believed that the case would be resolved quickly. However, almost 30 years later, Roger Hooper's murder remains unsolved. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Number 5. Beverly Potter Mintz. In early 1987, 23-year-old Beverly Potter Mintz lived in the small town of Leland, North Carolina. Beverly was married but she and her husband, William Mitz, had separated. He was in the army, and in early 1987, he was stationed in Germany. Beverly lived in a small house in Leland with the couple's two sons, four-year-old BJ and two-year-old Andrew. On the morning of February 22nd, 1987, the boy's paternal grandmother picked up BJ around 10am and took him to run some errands. That left Beverly home alone with Andrew. 
At around 12.30 that afternoon, Beverly's mother, Lorraine, stopped by to pay her daughter a visit. She had a birthday cake for Andrew's birthday, which was the following day. Lorraine found the front door unlocked, which was very unusual for her safety-conscious daughter to do. As she opened the door, knocking on it as she did, Beverly did not answer, but she did hear Andrew crying from the back of the house. Lorraine went towards the sound and found the back bedroom splattered with blood. Andrew was unharmed. Beverly was lying on the bed with a pillowcase over her head and her hands were tied behind her back with nylon rope. When the pillowcase was removed, Lorraine was horrified to see that Beverly's throat had been slit, nearly to the point of decapitation. She had also been stabbed seven times. The medical examiner would later determine that Beverly had been sexually assaulted. The time of death was estimated to be within two hours of Lorraine arriving at the home. Now, the police did talk to Andrew since it was very likely he witnessed the attack. But due to him being only two years old, he was not able to explain what he saw. The police quickly eliminated all the usual suspects. Beverly's husband was not even in the country and therefore was never considered even a person of interest. Beverly was dating a man who owned the local restaurant, but he had an airtight alibi. Some investigators believe that the killer found Beverly through a classified ad that she had placed in the town's weekly newspaper. Beverly was trying to sell a waterbed. The weekly newspaper had a promotion where someone could place an ad for free for a whole week. And although the bed wasn't sold in that initial week, Beverly decided to try again the following week. But to take advantage of the promotion, Beverly used her mother's phone number instead of her own phone number. Not long after the second ad was placed, Beverly sold her waterbed to a friend. However, Lorraine did not know this. On the morning of the murder, a man called Lorraine and said he wanted to stop by to look at the bed. Lorraine called Beverly to tell her that someone was going to stop by to have a look at the bed, and that's when Beverly told her that she had already sold it. The man did not give Lorraine his name or number, and Lorraine did not have a call display, so they were unable to call him back. Beverly had just planned to tell the man the bed was sold when he came by. Some investigators have theorised that the man looking for the waterbed is the killer, because at the crime scene, they found a newspaper with Beverly's classified ad circled in red. However, it is debated on unsolved mysteries and true crime forums if the killer actually did find Beverly this way. Some armchair sleuths believe that Beverly was stalked before she was killed and the classified ad was just a way to taunt or mislead the police. The reasoning behind this theory was the killer must have been watching Beverly to know that she would be home alone when he forced his way into her home. He brought the nylon rope with him so the murder, or at least the sexual assault, it must have been premeditated. 
also in support of the stalking theory, is that Beverly received several strange phone calls in the weeks before she was killed. Someone would call her, then when she picked up, they would heavily breathe into the phone before hanging up. These calls would normally come in only minutes after she arrived home. Some believe this means the caller was watching her and knew her routines and habits. Sadly, about six years after the murder, her estranged husband, William, died from carbon monoxide asphyxiation. Beverly's family hope that one day they will receive justice and find out who murdered their Beverly. Number four, Jasmine Robinson. February 18th, 2019 started out like any other day for 23-year-old Jasmine Robinson. She checked her social media accounts while FaceTiming with her sister and texting her brother. Jasmine was almost seven months pregnant and she had a prenatal appointment the following day that she was looking forward to. She went to work with her grandmother, taking her home from work. She went to work and then her grandmother took her home. Her grandmother would later report that Jasmine seemed upset and angry. Jasmine was having difficulty with her father of the baby. He was constantly calling her on her cell phone and while at work. Rumours on unsolved mysteries and true crime forums state that he was in a relationship with another woman at the time and he was not happy about the pregnancy. Jasmine did not want to be involved with him and his constant calls were upsetting her. At 8pm, Jasmine's grandmother dropped her off at home and Jasmine would tell her that her aunt was taking her to her appointment the following morning. They said goodnight and Jasmine would go back inside. This would be the last confirmed sighting of the young mother-to-be. At some time during the night, Jasmine would leave her home with an unknown person. Police have stated there is evidence that she did not want to leave. Jasmine's family members believe that the unborn baby's father could be involved in Jasmine's disappearance. This man's identity has never been publicly identified and police have stated that there are no suspects in the case. When Jasmine was first reported missing, there was speculation she might have run away on her own volition. This was further perpetuated by reported sightings of her in the Gainesville area. Jasmine had reasons to leave her life. She had a court date on February 21st, 2019, three days after her disappearance. She was facing theft and fraud charges after she allegedly had stolen a mobile phone and sent money to herself using a cash app on her phone, using someone else's credit card. However, her family are adamant that Jasmine would not run away from her problems, that she had planned on pleading guilty and was expected to receive probation and be required to pay restitution for her crime. Jasmine's baby would now be almost 18 months old, but unfortunately it is believed that Jasmine is no longer alive and that she never had a chance to become a mother.
Number three, Mercedes Tolver. 18-year-old Mercedes Tolver was certain on the direction her life was headed. A recent graduate from Prescott High School in Arkansas, the teen was working hard on entering the Air Force the following year. Mercedes wasn't like your typical teenager you will hear on true crime podcasts. There was no rebellious streak. She never went to parties, instead preferring to stay home and study or read books. Mercedes did not want to be distracted from what she wanted to achieve in her life. Her cousin would later tell Dateline, quote, She was determined to do something great. She wanted to prove that she could be someone, unquote. On December 16, 2016, Mercedes had a fight with her mother, Felice, over something her mother now reflects is something silly. This fight would continue, and at around 2am on December 17th, Mercedes would walk out the front door with her cell phone and $20 in her pocket. Felice was slightly concerned but knew her daughter wouldn't go far and assumed she would go to her aunt Doris's home a few blocks over to cool down. Later that day, Felice went Christmas shopping, buying Mercedes a new art set, knowing her daughter loved to draw. Also picking her up some clothes, Felice called Mercedes' cell phone to check her size, but the call went straight to message bank. This was unusual, as Mercedes always had her cell phone in hand. But shaking the anxious feeling off, it wouldn't be until two days later, on December 19th, that Felice would realise Mercedes never made it to her aunt Doris's home, and she reported her daughter missing to the police. Early in the investigation, the Prescott Police Department received a tip that there had been sightings of Mercedes in Clark or Lafayette counties, but these sightings have never been confirmed. Community searches and door-to-door checks have yielded no clues on Mercedes' whereabouts. There has been no activity on her cell phone since the night of her disappearance, and authorities have been unable to track its location. Leads have been very few, and unfortunately for the family, the case has gone cold. At the time of her disappearance, Mercedes Trover was 18 years old. She is African-American with black hair and brown eyes. She is petite, standing 5 foot 3 and 120 pounds. She was last seen wearing a red hoodie with a yellow shirt underneath and grey sweatpants. If Mercedes is still alive today, she would be 22 years old. Number 2 Ashley Loring, Heavy Runner June 2017, 21-year-old Ashley Loring, Heavy Runner, messaged some friends on social media, asking for a ride into the nearby city of Browning, Montana, from her grandparents' rural ranch on the Blackfeet Reservation. After a stint in foster care as a young child with her sister Kimberly. Their grandparents were legally made guardians and the sisters grew up on the large property. 
June 5th, 2017, Ashley left her grandparents' home with some clothes in her backpack and headed off to meet with friends. A few hours later, a brief video on social media captured Ashley drinking beer at a party on the reservation. Sometime during the night, she sent Kimberly a series of texts asking her for money. Kimberly, who was in Monaco visiting her fiancé, she told her she couldn't because she was in Africa. Ashley told her sister she would be, quote, fine as always, unquote. This would be the last time anyone would hear from Ashley again. When her family could not reach Ashley for several days, they didn't think much of it. It would be a common occurrence for her to misplace her phone and go off the grid. But as days turned into weeks and then her father was hospitalised for liver failure, Kimberly reached out to Ashley's friends in an effort to find her sister. However, no one had seen Ashley since the party on the reservation. Ashley would be reported missing to the police, but was quickly dismissed as a missing person. Two weeks after Ashley was last seen, a witness reported seeing a young woman fleeing from a vehicle on the night Ashley disappeared, along a remote stretch of Route 89, surrounded by forest terrain and bogs. A three-day search of this area would recover a grey sweater in a dump, similar to what Ashley was wearing on the night she disappeared. Unfortunately, the sweater would be lost before it could be forensically examined. They would eventually also find a pair of red-stained boots and a tattered sweater that belonged to Ashley. The sweater and boots were found close to a lake house owned by Sam MacDonald, who was one of the people last seen with Ashley. MacDonald has been questioned multiple times and he alleges he last saw Ashley when he dropped her off on the side of the road so someone named V-Dog could pick her up. Now, V-Dog is apparently the nickname for Paul Venenswula, a man in his 50s with an extensive criminal record. He was dating Ashley at the time of her disappearance. V-Dog was married to a woman named Tanisha and would only become officially divorced a month after Ashley went missing. Tanisha also claims she was not aware of her estranged husband and Ashley's relationship and that she was with him in Seattle at the time of Ashley's disappearance. However, a corrections officer report also states V-Dog's intention of returning to Blackfeet Nation just two days before McDonald claims Ashley was picked up by him on the side of the road. Kimberly also states that she had texted both V-Dog and Tanisha about her sister's disappearance and have received messages back from both respectively, saying that each other knows what happened. When asked about the text messages by Dateline, Tanisha abruptly ended the interview. Since Ashley's disappearance, Kimberly has moved back to the reservation to help search for her sister. She and other family members often organise searches in the Rocky Mountains. Kimberly has said that while law enforcement were helpful in the early investigation, they have since refused to return her calls. 
This is apparently an ongoing issue in the reservation, with a series of unsolved violent crimes not being investigated. This is mainly because of the lack of resources and officers available to do the work necessary. Kimberly has spoken about the most difficult part of Ashley's disappearance is not knowing where her sister is, but she believes that Ashley is no longer alive. As children of the foster care system, Kimberly promised her little sister that she would never allow her to go anywhere that she could not find her, and it is a promise that she intends to keep. At the time of her disappearance, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner was 21 years old. She is American Indian, 5 foot 2 and around 90 pounds, with long straight brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing jeans and a t-shirt. If Ashley is still alive today, she would be 24 years old. There is currently a $15,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. Number 1. Keslin Roberts 20-year-old Keslin Roberts was the kind of woman you would remember seeing. She was bright, bubbly, outgoing, kind and beautiful. She turned heads wherever she went. On January 18, 2020, Keslin arrived at the Flying J truck stop in Georgia with plans on meeting an unknown man. However, police were called to the truck stop after Keslin entered an employee-only kitchen and got into an altercation with a staff member. She fled the scene before police arrived, leaving behind her cash debit cards, identification and phone charger. Where she went is not clear as she has never been seen again and how she left is just as much of a mystery as her vehicle was also left behind. Keslin started to get into trouble in her senior year of high school and she was charged with some drug-related offences leading to her being on probation at the time of her disappearance. It was a missed meeting with her probation officer that led her father, Eric, to realise his daughter was missing on January 20th. He spoke with her boyfriend, who claimed not to have seen Keslin for several days, but he knew her car had been left at the Flying J. This is when Eric reported her missing. There would be no search of the area or her car for a few more days due to confusion over the jurisdiction of the missing persons report. A probation violation was issued for Keslin the day before she disappeared, which may be related to her leaving on her own volition. But no evidence has been found to indicate her whereabouts. Unconfirmed sightings at multiple truck stops were reported in the months following her disappearance, meaning it is possible she got to ride with a truck, but none of these sightings have ever been substantiated. Police have interviewed Keslin's family, friends, her boyfriend and the person she was meeting at the Flying J that day, but no one has been publicly identified as a person of interest or a suspect. In early March 2020, investigators searching the Flying J found clothing believed to have belonged to Keslin in some bushes near a dumpster behind the building.
An anonymous witness claimed that these had been there since January. However, for reasons that are not made clear, police did not take them into evidence. Unfortunately, due to the lack of surveillance cameras at the Flying J, and in particular in the back parking lot where Keslin's car was located, it means that little information exists of her arriving and then leaving the truck stop. Keslin would not be the only person to go missing from the Flying J truck stop. Just two days earlier, on January 16, 2020, 21-year-old Caleb Smith would also go missing. Police were quickly to deny the two cases were linked. They did not know each other and did not come from the same area. Unfortunately, on February 2nd, Caleb's naked remains were found in a wooded marshy area in the northwestern part of Gordon County near Sugar Valley. There is currently a $6,000 reward in place for anyone with information that could lead to Keslin's whereabouts, a reward raised by her father, Eric. Eric has publicly stated he will not stop his search until he brings his daughter home. At the time of her disappearance, Keslin Roberts was 20 years old. She is 5 foot 6 and 125 pounds, with long, straight blonde hair and blue eyes. If Keslin is still alive today, she would be 21 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.